Okay, I'll be left in the shit one regime. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Waqal Rabbi Shafi Sadri wa Yasrli Amri. Wahl Ukutarmi Sani Fakauli Bismillahi, Walhamdulillahi, Wasrat Waslam. Allah Rasulullah, Sri Sam Amabad. So last week we left off on a little bit of a cliffhanger. But before I just kind of mentioned and just give you a little bit of a recap on uh, some of the events that did occur, one lesson from this particular segment of the life of the Prophet Muhammad Last week when I talked about the massacre of the Birma'una, which the scholars classified it as probably one of the worst events that happened against the Muslims, um, having 70 of the Sufa. So the Sufa were considered to be in your Muslim community, the elite in terms of knowledge. These are the people that dedicated their time 100% into Islam. So they used to obviously live in their masjid and they didn't work. They would spend all their time studying. They'll be collecting hadith. They'll be narrating and they'll be collecting it from other sahabi who used to travel with the Prophet Muhammad They'll learn from the Prophet and they used to teach others. This is something that the Prophet Muhammad endorsed. So consider them to be the students of Islam and the Medina Masjid, the, the Prophet's Masjid at that time was like the university. So they would educate themselves. They didn't have any earnings, they didn't have any income, there wasn't any government grants for them. So the Prophet Muhammad whichever money that would come in, whatever booty that they would capture from the walls or the ghazwa that they used to have, you know, the ruling of Islam is one-fifth of that wealth that is captured goes towards the Prophet and Allah SWT. And what that means doesn't mean, as in like in the monarchies of the Christian kings and so forth, that, you know, a certain portion of the taxes go to the king and for them to spend it the way they want. What this means is that the Prophet Muhammad would then distribute this money to the poor. He would distribute the money to the orphans. He would distribute it amongst his family if where it's required and so forth. And so this money was used to spend... Um, giving it to the Sufa so they can continue learning. And so when, <clears throat> so this was considered to be, this massacre was considered to be one of the worst events that ever happened in the life of the Prophet Muhammad And what's interesting about this is that this event happened immediately after the Battle of Hud. Or Hud was a very big blow for the Muslims, devastating. And personally for the Prophet Muhammad was huge because of the fact that his uncle, and you can consider his uncle to be almost like his best friend because they were similar in age and they were foster brothers as well uh, from the early stages. This was such a personal blow to the Prophet as well as the Muslims. You know, we know about 70 Muslims or 70 plus Muslims that had been martyred in the Battle of Hud and only 22 had been killed uh, on, on the enemy side. And many of the great companions, people like Musab ibn Amir. Musab ibn Amir was a Sahabi that opened up Medina for the Prophet Muhammad who had been killed in that battle as well. Psychologically, it was devastating for the Muslims, for the Prophet Muhammad and they took a massive big blow on this. But the lesson was very clear. It was because simple, it was a simple instruction that they disobeyed. The archers, and if you've ever been to Umrah or Hajj and you've ever done the Zirayat and you've seen the mountain of the archers and they were given a position to protect the backs of the Muslims and they disobeyed. But it wasn't just the fact that they disobeyed. It was what did they disobey Allah over? What did they compromise? What were they willing to give up to sacrifice everything? And that was wealth. That was the dunya. And that's something that we always, always continuously up against. They saw that the enemy ran. They saw the Muslims who were fighting on the front line were picking up the money and the booty. And little did they know, if they trusted Allah and the Prophet Muhammad 
the Prophet would have distributed that booty equally amongst everyone. When you're seeing that people are eating up like vultures and picking up all of this wealth, what do you think came through their mind? The Prophet had ordered us and they understood what the concept of order means. We don't understand that. When we say, Allah says in the Quran, that you should, you know, that you should establish your salah, and this is the highest of all orders because this is the order from Allah that was directly given by Allah to the Prophet, whereas the other hukums that were given were given via Andrew Jibreel. It should make you realize when Allah has ordered something over everything in the universe, a direct commandment to you, and you do not do that, then what are the consequences? They saw the consequences here. The fact that they disobeyed and they went for the wealth, they went for the dunya. And Allah even mentioned this. He said, you left my commandment for the dunya. And as a result of that, you will see the consequences of what will happen. And there's no doubt Allah forgives afterwards. Whatever is in your heart on the day, Allah knows what's in your heart, right? You have time, ask for forgiveness. But for every action that is incorrect, there's a consequence. And it happens in our life. As a result of that particular event, and they didn't even recover from this. They were mourning of the death and the, the fact that they lost it. It took a blow in the Iman as well. And you can imagine that the other so-called Muslims, the hypocrites, were then whinging and moaning and they were laughing. And they were saying, oh, you listen to this man, now look what happened. The hypocrites were saying to the Muslims, you listen to this man, look what happened. Behind the Prophet's back behind the believers, and they kept on saying this. And then there were people in the middle who were not as strong as the Ansar or the Mahajirun, very easy to sway. So people were falling in and out of Islam or their actions and their beliefs, right? And this was, the, this was the dilemma that they were facing. So you always have in your society those who will tell and command the good, and they'll always tell you to do good. And then you have a set of friends and a set of people around you who will always guide you indirectly. Some are very blunt, some are very blatant. They'll say to you, forget the masjid, forget the salat time, forget the Ramadan, forget the tarawiyah, let's go out to Leicester Square, let's go get some food, let's do this, let's do shisha. They will be blunt, they'll be very blatant, they'll take you away from it. Some will be very subtle in their approach. Some of them will be very subtle. Some of them may give you advice in your work and say, look, you know, mate, if you want to succeed, if you want to get that promotion, you know, you're going to have to do a little bit more. Sometimes you might have to entertain the client. You might have to go out for a drink with them. Don't want to drink yourself. At least, you know, you're going to have to put it on the tab and expense it back. They'll be very subtle in the way they do it. But the point here is, whether it's direct, whether it's blunt, whether it's subtle, it's going to be a question of either Allah wins, you either follow his way or you follow the way of the Dawood, of the Kufr. But the irony of all of this is, is not Allah competing with the kufr. Allah created that kufr. He put that test in front of you. It was his test in the first place. And you still lost out. So what Allah is saying here is, if you made the right choice and you think that you've actually sacrificed an opportunity in this dunya, don't forget Allah is the master of the universe. He controls everything. And if you don't get this, he can make something else happen for you. But for Muslims, Sometimes things don't always go right. Something hits us and we think we're believers, we pray, we fasted, we finish our Quran, etc, etc. And then we have one bad spell. Then we have another problem. And then we have another problem. And then we have another problem. And you start, you doubt yourself. You start questioning this relationship with Allah. Say, I'm doing all my salah, I'm going to the masjid. 
One after the other, I've got problems with my wife, I've got problems with my job, my children aren't listening to me, my car's broken down, it's cost me loads of money. What's happening here? So Allah will keep on continuously testing you. This is the cycle of life. Why does Allah do that? Allah says, I will always test the believers. I will always test the ones who I love the most because that test is what makes them increase in their rank. It's what brings them higher and higher. So on the day of judgment, when I showed them that because of all these troubles I gave you and you persevered, look at the reward I'm going to give you. Not just the reward, the first element. I'm going to forgive everything that you've done. And you will say to Allah, then send me back to the dunya so I can go over it again and double my problems. That's the mentality you will have. So in this event, the Prophet Muhammad and the Muslim faced a series of issues. Immediately after the Battle of Hud, there was the massacre of Bir Ma'una, where these tribes came to the Prophet Muhammad and they said to the Prophet send us people who can teach us about Islam. So Muhammad was very excited about this and he decided I will send the best of the best of my ummah to go there to teach them. So he sent the Sufa. He sent send you of these learned people. And little did they know that when they went with the person who requested, the person who came to request it was sincere. But he was part of a tribe that was run by a man called Amr bin Tafail who was a very devious individual. This was the same man that attacked the Prophet Muhammad in Makkah. So when he found out that these Sufa turned up, he didn't think or even hesitate because this is the man who made the deal with the Prophet says, after you, if we give you support in Makkah, when the person was asking for support, he said, if we give you support after you, who will you give that power to? And the Prophet said, the power will go to where Allah wants it to go. He said, no, I want that power. He said, no, the power will go where Allah wants it to go. And he says, so you expect us to stick our neck out put our blood on the line for you only to know that afterwards that we may not get it. Are you mad? And he didn't attack the Prophet So as a result of that, this man became so angry that he wanted to take any opportunity to hurt uh, the Muslims. As many other tribes, they wanted to kill the, uh, the Prophet and the, and the Sahabi. They wanted to take the opportunity after Uhud that they saw, now there's a crack in the armor. Now we can take them down. So when these 70 came out to this area called Bir Ma'una, when Amr bin Tufel found out and there was a messenger from this Sufa that came and said, we come in peace, we'll teach you about Islam. They came and they massacred and killed all of them. Except with one of them, they left him as a message back to the Prophet. When this man returned back, on the way, obviously he was scarred. You go with your companions, you go with your family, you go with your friend and you see all 70 of them killed. All of them destroyed, massacred. You're left with something. You're in panic. You're crying. And he's in his journey back. And he's thinking, what am I going to do? What's, what's the process I'm going to say? And on the way back, he meets up with two other tribesmen that were coming from Medina. And he sat with them because obviously in the night, you need to be in protection. You need heat. You need, well, he had nothing. They stripped him of everything. He sat with them. They said, come join us. Sit with us. And he realized after talking to them that they were from the same tribe as Amr bin Tafel. And as a result of that, out of panic, out of anger, out of a psychological response, when they weren't looking, he killed and murdered both of them. And then when he took from them their armors and whatever, he, they, he found a letter on one of them. He opened it up and it was a note and a contract that was written by the Sahabi on behalf of the Prophet giving protection to these two. So he now broke 
a treaty protecting these two individuals. He went back to the Prophet and he told the Prophet this is what happened. Our Sufa had been killed and on top of that I wasn't aware that these two men that were here and I sat with them, they were from the same camp as Amr bin Tafel, even though they had nothing to do with what happened. I was not aware, I just sealed the enemy and I killed them. I murdered them. So the Prophet had an issue on his hand now where he had to pay the blood money for this. On the very same day, there was another issue that occurred, another massacre that hit the Prophet I mean, just imagine on the same day that the Prophet has now been hit. So this was the massacre of Al-Raji. And what happened in this particular case was once again, there was a tribe that came. There was a tribe that came and this tribe deliberately wanted to trick the Prophet So this tribe sponsored two sub-tribes and said, pretend you're Muslims, go to the Prophet, ask him to send some people to teach us about Islam. So before the Prophet got news about Bir Ma'una and the massacre, these people came. So he was thinking today is a good day. People are coming, they want to learn about Islam. So even though we are at Uhud, people are now coming to learn about Islam. So I'll send out another 10. So in this, he sent in the leadership of a Sahabi by the name of Asim bin Thabit. And he said to Asim, you go and you teach them about Islam. Altogether, there were 10 of them. They made their way to a place called Al-Raji. When they got there, these two sub-tribes, one was Adal and the other one was Al-Qara. So two of these tribes, they traveled, they were talking about Islam, no problem. As they got far away from Medina and they got to this place called Al-Raji, they turned around and they attacked the Muslims. Asim bin Thabit was very aware of what's happened and he ran after the mountains with some of them. Now, the backstory of this was that Asim bin Thabit in the Battle of Hud killed a man and the man's wife made a vow and an oath that she will drink wine from the skull of Asim bin Thabit. And she put out a hundred camels as reward for his head. You've got to remember, in the area of Najd, which is the east part of Arabia, all these tribes, they're vagabonds, they're just mercenaries, or they are just highway robbers. They will, take, they will do anything for a job, right? They will take anything for money. They will kill, they will rape, they will pillage. They will do anything you want if the money is right. So when they found that there was a bounty on his head, that's when they planned it, let's grab him. A hundred camels is a lot of money, right? That could have fed their tribe for the whole year, no problem. It was easy money for them. So they started to attack them, to kill them. Asim bin Thabit made his way to the mountain and he started firing arrows. When the arrows ran out, he took his sword and he fought and he fought and he fought until eventually they got to a point that they killed him. But just before they killed, he was very well aware what was going to happen to him once they caught him. And so he made a dua to Allah and he said to Allah, inform our Prophet, our Rasul, that we were sincere. He said, oh Allah, protect your religion as I protected your religion in the day. Therefore, protect my body at night. This is the dua that he made. And then he fought and he fought and he was killed. Those enemies came to get his body. The others were killed. And they came to get his body. As they tried to get his body to cut his head off, a swarm of bees or wasps surrounded him. This is a very uncanny situation, right? In the middle of the desert, a whole swarm of these wasps came and they couldn't get near. 
So they said, let's, let's retreat back. Let's just wait until the night. When the temperature is gone, these pests will just disappear. Came to the night out of nowhere. And this is the grammar that came from Allah, the small miracle that when they came, some river came or some water came and took his body away. They came and it disappeared. And they didn't understand how because they were in the middle of the desert. So this is how Allah protected his body. Now, even though 10 of those companions were being, actually three of them were in the mountains. So when they killed Asim bin Thabit, that was the one they wanted. They said to the other three that you come down, we want nothing from you. The reason why they wanted these three is because the Quraysh had their POWs, right? They had people from their tribe. They knew that the Quraysh hated these Muslims. So they thought if they captured these three, Asim bin Thabit's gone, that deal's gone. So let's take these three and we will trade them with our POWs, right? Our tribe people that the Quraysh have. So they said, come down. We won't kill you. We just want to trade you in. So there were three of these Sahabi. One was Khubeb. The other one was Zaid, and the other one was Abdul ibn Tariq. As they came down, they rested them. So they shackled them up and they marched them along the desert going towards Makkah. Abdullah ibn Tariq, in his mind, he says, I'm not going as a prisoner. I'm not doing this. I'm going to fight. So he released his shackles and turned against the enemies to fight them. But they immediately killed him. The other two, they stayed as they are. When they walked to Makkah, they gave Khabib over to the Al-Harith tribe. The reason why, because Khabib had killed one of their family members in the Battle of Badr. Zaid, on the other hand, was given to Safwan bin Umayyah because he was one of the guys that killed Safwan ibn Umayyah's father. They swapped over their prisoners and they took these two. They were kept as prisoners. And they were kept for some time. It wasn't like overnight and then they weren't going to execute them. They kept him and they tortured them. Hadra Khabib's story was that he was kept in a house of a woman that eventually became Muslim because she narrated this story. He was a prisoner in my house. We would hardly feed him and they would come and they would beat him in day and night and they would keep coming back to taunt him. There's a sacred months, about three or four months in the year and then you can't do any killing the story goes on to say they didn't wait for that period they waited for a certain time and they just couldn't wait anymore so they took him out of the region where you can actually kill or you can murder right but there's a certain part of the haram in the haram you can't do this so Khabib was prisoner there she said once I saw him and he was eating grapes the size of my head and there's no such thing as grapes in the desert when it was coming close they said to Khabib that tomorrow we are going to execute you so he said to the woman, please give me a blade because as a Muslim, I want to be clean if I'm going to see my Lord. And without thinking, because she thought he's such a nice guy, he's a nice prisoner, he hasn't caused me any trouble, she sent her son with the blade and said, go to the house and give Khabib the blade. The moment the young lad took the blade and went off into the house, the penny dropped and she all of a sudden panicked. She realized, what have I done? I've just handed a blade to my son. She's going to give it to him. He's either going to kill my son or he's going to take him as a prisoner to escape. So when she came running back to the house and she saw her son hand the blade, she looked panicked and she started to scream. And he looked at her upset and he said, what? 
do you think that I'm that much of a dishonorable individual that I'm going to kill this young kid of yours? No. I need this blade because I'm going to face Allah. You can take your son. And for her, that is very unusual because when you take prisoners, you take enemies, they take every opportunity to kill. But this, is, this isn't the behavior of the Muslim. So he prepared himself. They took him out. They used to torture. Zayd is now with the family of Safan bin Umayyah. And they used to parade Zayd around the Kaaba where people used to torture him where people used to mock him, people used to throw things at him, and they used to do it on a daily basis just to keep torturing him. Khabib, they took him out to Al-Tanim, just as outside of the Haram area. And they took him there and they sent a person to go and execute him. Alongside went Abu Sufyan with him. Right? So a few people of the Quraysh, they went to go and see this execution. So as they, as they took him out there, they had this almost like a, uh, they used to have these similar like the crucifix where they would just pin you up after they've killed you. So Khabib turns around and he says to the executor and to the people, Abu Sufyan, he says, before you kill me, will you allow me to pray to my two nafal for the sake of Allah? They didn't understand. They said, yeah, it's your last request. Everyone gives your last request right to the enemy if they're about to execute. So he does this. And he prays his nafal at a reasonable pace, he could have done longer. After he did Islam, he looked at them. He said, you know, if I wanted to, I could have prolonged this salah because it's very important because it's the point while I'm still alive, I'm still accountable. The point when I die, the, the doors of Tawbah are closed. If I wanted to, I could have prolonged my salah. But I didn't want to do this to make you think that I was trying to evade death and I was scared. So I done it quick, now you can bring it on. They went and they executed him, they killed him. And they hung him up as a warning. On the other side, Zayd is now being taunted, he's being tortured and so forth. And they bring him out and it's now time to kill him. So they bring him out. And just before they're about to kill him, Abu Sufyan walks over to Zayd. And he says to Zayd, tell me something now Zayd, here you are, there's no one around you, your family's not here, no one. You're now going to be executed. What do you think about your position now? Do you not wish now that Muhammad was in your place? Like, was he really worth this? He said, I would never trade my place. Even if there was a thorn, if a thorn was going to prick Muhammad I would still sacrifice my life so that thorn would not harm him. So bring it on. They executed him. And Abu Sufyan said the most profound point. He turned around and he said to Safwan bin Umayyah, he said, you know what? We've dealt with many, many people, right, with their leaders. I have never, ever seen a people that love their leader like they love Prophet Muhammad So that was the first point that something entered the heart of Abu Sufyan that made him realize because there was several other events that happened at a later stage. News got back, obviously, to Muhammad that these Sahabi had been killed. And so this for the Prophet was such a devastating news. Now you've got Hud. Now you had the massacre of Bir Ma'muna. And then you have Al-Raji, when these people who went to teach about Islam had also been massacred. I mean, how much more could you have possibly wanted? And if you were a responsible leader, you would almost feel put the blame on yourself. But he knew that all of this is because Allah subhanahu wa made it happen this way. In the dunya, you may feel like you are losing. But if everyone left you this dunya for the sake of Islam, then you are winners. You are martyrs. You are martyrs. 
This is the month that the Prophet Muhammad for one whole month, he prays something called the Salah Al-Qunut Al-Nazila. In this particular prayer, for the whole month, he used to pray this optional prayer where he used to make dua for those who were killed or they were martyred and he would make dua against those enemies that did this to him. This was very profound. And so during that period of time, Amr ibn Tafel, who killed the 70 of the Sufa, he ended up getting leprosy. That he was such a proud individual and he had this disease. Normally, if you're a leader and you're going to die, you know, you have your family around you and then you pass away and they give you a great send-off. He died in such a shameful way. He had this leprosy. People didn't want to come near him. He didn't want people see him die like this with his decaying disease. And so he rode off into the desert by himself and died in the desert. That's how Allah SWT finished him. And then he was going to get more punishment. But now even more trouble started for the Prophet So in that event of the Birma'una, when the Sahabi came back and he killed the two of Amr bin Tufel's tribe, now the Prophet had to give blood money. If, you, if it's manslaughter, there was not an intent, right? There's a manslaughter situation. You did not know, you were not aware. Then the Prophet has to pay 100 camels yeah, per individual to those families. Now, because the Prophet has established the Islamic State, this money comes out of the central treasury of the Islamic State. So all that money that gets collected, and we said the first one-fifth goes to the Prophet that money is the Baytul Mal, the treasury. Everyone has to contribute to that treasury as well. So that's come from the booty as well as from every of those tribes. The jizya tax that comes through, etc., etc., all contributes to that. So the Muslims, the non-Muslims, the polytheists, and the Jews all have to contribute to this. So the Prophet went to collect the money. And then he made his way to the Banu al-Nadir, who was the second Jewish tribe. Now, we already talked about the first Jewish tribe, the Banu Qurayza, right? And you remember the first incident he had with the Banu Qurayza, where they humiliated and they dishonored that Muslim woman. And the Muslim tried to protect her, and they killed him. And as a result, the Prophet sent an army to the Banu Qurayza. And Abdullah ibn Abay intervened and said, you know, will you not leave these people to me? Because he had a strong relationship with them, because he's a hypocrite. So now, Banu Nadir has started trouble. So the Prophet quietly goes to see Banu Nadir to collect their portion of the contribution to the blood money, right? Because we are a state, you have a treaty with us, and that's the deal. You fight with us, you defend, and you will contribute to the, the cost of the state. So the Prophet goes with the Sahabi, the close companions, gets to the fortress of Banu Nadir, there put their fake smiles on and they say to him, can you wait outside while we prepare? We'll have some food for you as well and we'll have the money ready. Now their fortress is almost like a big castle. It's their own fortress that they can protect themselves from any enemies. So the Prophet is sitting outside of the wall. They decided, we don't like this guy and they ordered one of their men go to the top and they have these massive big boulders that are already sitting on top of the walls for war. And they always, it's like cannons ready to go. They said, go to the top and throw the boulder over so it crushes the man Muhammad. Angel Jibreel came to Muhammad and said, this is what they're going to do. And he ordered the Prophet to go back to Medina, to the city now. So the Prophet quickly got up and he left. This is while the instructions were going up and the man was going up to throw the boulder over. He didn't say anything to the Sahabi and 
he went all the way back. When he got back there, the Sahabi, Umar bin Khattab and so forth, they went there and said, what happened? He said, they were going to assassinate me. Jibreel came down and they told me. So the Prophet Muhammad sent Muhammad ibn Maslama and said, go to them because you have the close relationship with them from before and tell them they have 10 days to leave Medina. They've got 10 days to leave Medina or they will suffer big consequences. Their leader was Hoy bin Ahtab, right? So this was the, if you remember Hoy bin Ahtab, he was the one that when the Prophet first came to Medina, he was the one, Sophia's father, who went with his brother to go check out if this man Muhammad is the true Prophet, does he match our scriptures? And this is the one that when he first came, they went to see him, they looked at his markings and so forth, they came back. And Hazrat Sophia, she narrated that I heard my uncle and my father talking. And my uncle said to my father, what do you think? Is he the prophet? And he said, by Allah, he is the prophet. So what do we do then? If he's a prophet and that's what's written in our scriptures, what do we do? He says, I will roll over my grave three times before I follow this man. Because they had a big issue with the fact that Muhammad was the lineage of Ismail. And there's a whole history and we covered that. So he was always against the Prophet Muhammad, never wanted to follow him. So Huay bin Akhtab is now panicking because we know what happened to Banu Qurayza. If he's going to come for us, we're going to be in trouble. So the hypocrite Abdullah ibn Abay, the one who took the 300 soldiers away from the Muslims in Uhud, who deliberately went against the Prophet Muhammad and then pretended afterwards, oh no, no, we were going to help you out. We just didn't think the fight was going to happen. We're really sorry and so forth. Abdullah ibn Abay sent a letter to Huwai ibn Akhtab saying to him, under no circumstances will you leave Medina. Forget what he says. I have clout. I'm a politician here. You do not move from this point. Don't care what he says. He said, I will take care of the situation. I will guarantee your protection. If they end up expelling you, if I fail in doing my job, then I will promise you I will leave with you. Abdullah ibn Abay giving a letter. This boosted up Huwai ibn Akhtab. He thought, okay, we got his backing. And you know what? This is exactly what happens with Kufar. They always push each other, don't they, to go do the dirty work. They all push each other. Abdullah bin Abay wanted to make sure that this man, Huwai bin Akhtab, with the Jews, stand there. And if a fight was going to break out, you do all the dirty work and fight Muhammad Sallam. You do the dirty work, you fight him. And if you end up killing him, I'm going to be the leader anyway. So I don't have to do anything. So they play these dirty games with each other. That's why Allah said in the Quran, you can never trust the believers and the believers can't trust each other. And you'll know that from the battle of the trenches. And so Allah SWT, he revealed an eye of the Quran regarding this. And he said, Allah rejects his claim. And he said, have you not seen the hypocrites? Have you not seen Abdullah ibn Abay and his men who say to their fellow disbelievers, the Jews, from the people of the book, if you are expelled, we will certainly leave with you and we will never obey anyone against you. And if you are fought against, then we will stand with you and fight. But Allah bears witness that they are truly liars. Indeed, if they are expelled, they will never leave with them. And if they are fought against, they will never help them. And even if they did, they will certainly flee. Then they, the disbelievers, would be left with no help. Now Allah is giving you a message here. 
Allah has given you a message. Just take this example today. Everyone's pushing Israel. Go, go, go. Do the fight. Do the fighting. This is what they're going to do, right? They're going to go and they're going to massacre everyone like they're doing now. And when the time comes, when the whole world will see, see all of this, eventually what's going to happen? Everyone's going to turn and say, whoa, you know, we told them not to do this, right? Because everyone's going to turn against America. Everyone's going to turn against Britain. Their own people will turn. Allah will open up the eyes of people. And they, Allah is already saying that what do you think is going to happen? You don't need to know what's going to happen. You, can't, you don't have to guess it. Allah has already told you what will happen. Allah will tell you what is going to happen. And so the Banu Nadir, of course, felt very brave and said, we'll hold our position. We got the backing of the man himself. So they didn't budge. Immediately, the Prophet Muhammad when he got this news from Huwai bin Akhtab, he sent a message to the Prophet we're not moving, we're not budging. This is our land, we're going to stay here. Muhammad called for the Adhan and sent the army down to the fortress of the Banu Al-Nadir. They came there and they basically surrounded that fortress. They started to panic, they didn't know what to do. There may have been a few scuffles here and there, but their food supplies were running out. How, how were they going to get their food supplies? Now they're very clever because they do have actually tunnels underneath, right? Where they can get to water sources and so forth. So the Prophet said, okay, they're obviously holding out. So he looked around and he saw land, right, with their agriculture, okay? So the Prophet Muhammad ordered the Sahabi, burn down their trees. And as they started to burn down the trees, they started to panic. They started to panic. And they said to the Prophet, what are you doing? Why are you burning these down? These are our assets and so forth. And even the Sahabi were thinking, you know, we, we're going to make use of these at some point. But the Prophet ordered the burning of these down and this was permitted by the hukum of Allah So eventually what happened was they gave up. You know why? Because Abdullah ibn Abay was nowhere to be seen. Huwai ibn Akhtab, there was internal conversations. The story goes into a lot of detail and I'm not going to cover it in this particular session. But people were falling apart. As a matter of fact, some of the Jews, they said, Huwai ibn Akhtab, you have done wrong. We're leaving. And they left and they became Muslim. They joined the Prophet Muhammad So eventually Huwai ibn Akhtab came out and he said, okay, we're done. So the Prophet said, you take whatever you can. I'm, you're lucky I'm even giving you this. Whatever your camels can take in weight of gold and anything, you take them and you leave. So Huwai ibn Akhtab ordered his men, the women, grab everything. Such jahil people that they are. They knew that they had done wrong. They had broken. Listen to this. The treaty that they had broken wasn't because of just this. They knew that they had instigated the fitna with the Quraysh to attack the Prophet ﷺ. We talked about the story of Khabin al-Ashraf. Khabin al-Ashraf was who? Banu Nadir. Wasn't he the one who went to Makkah and then motivated him to prepare and finance the fight against the Prophet ﷺ in Uhud? They disobeyed the Prophet ﷺ. They instigated internally and on top of that they tried to kill him. Now you imagine if somebody tries to assassinate King Charles here, what would happen to him? Do you think they will say, all right, we'll let you go. You can take all your money from your bank accounts, take a Mercedes Benz. As a matter of fact, take one of our Rolls Royces as well and you can go. This was quite a deal that they got. So they were allowed to take everything. 
Because they knew the Prophet and the Muslims were going to take over their land, their houses were beautiful. You know what they did? They started to break their houses and burn them down because they didn't want the Muslims to have them. They started to break and burn their own houses down so they said if we can't have them, they can't have them. Then a situation occurred that when the person was telling them to leave, the Muslims, the Ansar and the, uh, the people of Medina, this was the saddest bit, they came to the Prophet and they begged the Prophet Prophet said, what's the problem? They said, you don't understand. With this family, with this, with this tribe, is our children. He said, what do you mean? He said, many years ago, they used to trap us in trade. So when they used to make us fight, the Oz and Khazraj, the two Muslim tribes, before they were Muslims, they used to make us fight each other. So if we wanted weapons, they would say, what's your collateral? And we would say, we can give you a quarter of our crops. They said, it's not enough. They said, give us your wife and give us your children. So we would hand over our children. They were infants at the time until we can pay it back. But because they used to trap us into interest and debt that we could never repay, they kept our kids. So our kids grew up becoming like them Jews. And they were enslaved by them. So the Prophet ﷺ said, the only thing I can do is ask your children if they want to stay with you or they want to go. Because the situation is now very sensitive because they're now stuck with these family and they've been brought up by them. So these Sahabis, their mothers, they went and they asked their children to come. But because their children went when they were infants and now they're 15, 16 year old, they don't even recognize their parents. They barely know them. They said, no, these are our families. We're going with them. Their past came to haunt them. All this shows you the treachery of kufr. When you seed this kind of stuff in the dunya, people end up paying the price for it. They end up paying the price and that was their test. So they left. So the Banu Nadir left Medina. So they say that some went to Syria and the vast majority went to Khaybar. And that will lead us onto the story of the Khaybar and the attack of Khaybar, right? Because they all went there. But they didn't just go there just so they can live. They went there to regroup, then to plan some years ahead to then fight the Prophet Muhammad again. The distribution of the land, the eye of the Quran, Allah SWT ordered that as far as this land is concerned, now remember, there is no war. There is different rulings. If you actually go to war and you fight and the armies are fighting and you win, then the booty gets distributed. But in this case where there's no fight and you, you just literally just capture it, then what Allah SWT orders for these particular cases, that all of this wealth that is captured goes to the poor, the needy, the orphans, etc. So what Allah SWT has said, as for, the great, as for the gains that are granted by Allah to his messenger from the people of other lands, they are for Allah and the messenger and his close relatives, the orphans, the poor, the needy and the travelers, so that the wealth may not merely circulate amongst the rich. So this was the first ruling, a profound element in the Islamic finance system. That you don't just dish out the money to the rich who then keep circulating amongst themselves. So this money goes to them. So who were those people that were poor? It was mainly the Mahajirun. Because the Mahajirun in Makkah were rich and wealthy. But when they were kicked out of Makkah, they had nothing. So they were the poor. They, were, they didn't have their own homes. 
They were working for the Ansar, right? They were working in their fields. They were living in their homes, whatever they can get. So before any bad feelings start to occur within the Ansar, Allah SWT immediately looked with the mercy of Allah. He revealed the following ayah immediately after this. And he said, as for those who had settled in the city and embraced the faith before the arrival of the immigrants, meaning the Ansar, they love whoever emigrates to them. These people, the Ansar, they love visitors. They love people who come to stay with them, never having desire in their hearts for whatever is given to the emigrants. They give them preference over themselves. They sacrifice their own food for the people that come to stay with them, even though they may be in need themselves. And whoever is saved from the selfishness of their own souls, it is they who are truly successful. So Allah says, because you are not selfish, and because you have saved yourself from your own greed, Allah is saying something about you that you are successful. What, Allah say, what does he mean when he says you're successful? He means you've already made it to Jannah. You're done. That's your ticket. So that's a very powerful statement. So when Prophet recited this to them, the Ansar were completely, utterly overwhelmed, right? And so it even talks about, even Allah then goes on to talk about the companions that came after that. And those who come after them, they will say, O oh Lord, forgive us and our fellow believers who preceded us in faith. That's you he's talking about now. Allah is now saying, and for those who came after them, they will say, O oh Allah, forgive us and our fellow believers who preceded us in faith, the Ansar that had come, the Muslims that were there before, and do not allow bitterness into our hearts towards those who believe. Our Lord, indeed, you are ever generous and most merciful. So Allah is ordering us that we should have this in our heart, that we should forgive those before and that we should not have this jealousy amongst ourselves because it's that disease that competitive disease that basically makes us destroy each other. You know, you have this conversation that you look at certain communities, like the Sikh community, they say they're doing so well. That's because they support each other. You look at the Jews, they'll only give business to each other. But if you look at the Muslims, they will do anything to destroy each other's businesses just to make themselves look good. Even whether it's to do with money or reputation, we are each other's throats. If there are two Muslim counselors, what would they do in public to each other? defame each other, put each other down. And Allah is saying that these people, if you're true believers, then ask Allah to remove the bitterness from your heart. Because bitterness can only be removed when you stop thinking about the dunya and you start thinking about the akhirah. There's many lessons that came out of this. A couple of things that did happen in, in that time, in this same period of time, Allah SWT started to give the Muslims a little bit more ease in the events. This is the same year that our famous Sahabi, uh, Hazrat Hassan and Hussein were born as well, both of them. And the Prophet loved them greatly, right? Because Hazrat Zainab, his daughter, she had these two children. He was so infatuated by his grandchildren that even when he used to pray, just give you an idea that he used to pray and the, and the toddlers at the time, they used to jump on his head and the Prophet would not move and he would stay down in sujood. Everybody else behind him would stay down in sujood until they come off and, and they've had their play. And even to the point that Prophet when he was to stand there giving the khutbah, you can imagine the masjid is packed, and he used to see them coming in with their red clothes, and they used to be, because he used to, tell, he used to trip over each other, and the Prophet used to stop his khutbah right in the middle, not say nothing, just to pick them both up, right? 
because of the love and affection. This is just how Muhammad has affection to children, how we make them priorities in our life and we give them time and we give them effort. But one of the big stories I want to talk about next week is really another challenge that comes to the Prophet Muhammad So this is not a challenge for the, the, for the Muslims. Allah sometimes what he does, there's a, there's a challenge for us as a community that we will have hardship, like what's happening with the Palestinians. This is a challenge to the Ummah. And if you're true believers, you will feel their pain as well. And if you're not a believer and you're really loose in Islam, you can sleep well at night not thinking about them and waking up and not giving a damn. And you do not want to be in that situation. You want to feel the plight and you want to feel the hurt and the pain that they're feeling as Muslims, like they are one of your own. But sometimes Allah tests the Prophet and only the Prophet so that he can excel him to another level, ready for the next stage. And this was the story about the Prophet's marriage to his cousin Zainab bint Jaish, his first cousin. And she was already married to Zayd bin Haritha, who was classified as his adopted son. And they got divorced. And then Allah had ordered the Prophet Muhammad to marry her, even though it went against the norms of the values of society. So inshallah, we'll carry that next week. But we'll see you then, inshallah.